The Mixtape Challenge is part of This Week in Podcasting, a network that brings together music, television, entertainment, and pop culture programming all in one place. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash This Week in Podcasting. Thanks for tuning in to Mixtape Challenge, the music discovery game show podcast where contestants challenge each other to create a four-track music mix based on a different theme every episode. Today's challenge comes from one of our contestants, and we're calling it Sounds and Sights. I am your host, Jeff Hewlett, and along with myself, our contestants today are a husband and wife team hailing from right here in New Jersey. Let's meet them right now. Our first contestant is also the issuer of our Sights and Sounds Challenge. She is the owner of White Light Productions. Please welcome Melissa Whiteley to the show. Hello. How are you, Melissa? Very good. Thank you. How are you? I am doing wonderfully. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, and specifically, let's talk a little bit about the film that you just released a little while ago called Leaving Virginville. Um, Leaving Virginville is a feature film that I wrote, produced, directed. It's currently just doing a festival run right now, so I don't have it out available for the public at the time being. But odds are that will change soon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to be at a premiere of that film. I would say it was a wonderful experience. I can't wait for it to actually be out and be available. So are you going to do like a DVD or Blu-ray type release thing or streaming? I was going to say, I had thought about that, but it seems like everybody's streaming these days. Mm. So that might be the easiest way for people to have access to it. I know. I'm such a physical media guy. I <laughs> want a tangible piece of physical media in my hands. I don't know what that's, that's about. I'm very similar to you because I feel that way too, especially for the cast and crew. Right. Just to be able to hold the disc. Right. But we'll see how well the film does. Right. You don't want to walk around to all your crew and hand them download codes, right? <laughs> no, no. 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 Definitely not. Well, like we said, Melissa is the issuer of today's Sounds and Sights Challenge. So I figured we would let you run through your vision for this challenge. Well, when you came to me and invited me to be on your show, and we were talking about themes, being a filmmaker, I was just thinking that it makes perfect sense to do the marriage of sight and sound Mm -hmm. and explore what that means to me. Uh, There was one that came just to mind right away, and I think it even pitched it to everybody who's involved in the podcast today. Um, And I just said, it's really interesting to me how music brings me right to a film. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when it's perfect thematically... I mean, it's just a match made in heaven. The one thing that I did want to do to push us, I didn't want it to be a song that was written for the film. That's easy, relatively speaking. Not to put down any musicians, because I do know that there's a challenge there. I'm not not saying it's cakewalk. But I, as a filmmaker, was looking at it from the perspective of what happens when I'm watching a movie and I'm thinking to myself, oh, this, this song would go perfect right here as an opening credit. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wanted to find something that already existed in the world and match it with a film. That's awesome. I love that it adds a little bit of extra challenge when it has to be a song that wasn't specifically written for the film. That's the great twist about this challenge. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and approaching it more from a filmmaker perspective. Exactly. Because as a musician, if I hire you to come up with a theme song for my film, it's challenging, but we're going to work on it together where if it's all of a sudden I'm, I'm writing a scene and I think to myself, oh, I know where this is coming from because I love this song that I was listening to the other day and there that's influencing go. the story and where this mm-hmm. is going in this character. Yeah. Two, two artistic mediums fused together, inspiring each other. That is amazing. Well, thank you for issuing this challenge. I'm really excited about this. I know we're all, we've all been pretty excited about this. We've been talking about it for weeks now. So <laughs> it's nice to finally sit down and record this. So w- let's introduce our second contestant, by the way. We've been talking a little bit before introducing him. He is the founder of the Philadelphia-based rock band, Effusion 35, Mr. Pat Manley. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Um, can you tell listeners a little bit about yourself and the band? Sure. Um, so I'm 40. Um Married. Are we all stating our ages now? <laughs> Are we stating? Let's state our ages. I'm 43. I like how he almost went single. Yeah. <laughs> Melissa, you he don't have to He has a lot of freedom. No, no, I'm not single. I'm, I'm married to your other contestant. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I, I hail from the Philadelphia area. I grew up outside of Philadelphia called Collingdale. It's a small suburb. Nice. Uh, in Delaware County, Pennsylvania. Cool. And, yes, I founded a Fusion 35 almost 20 years ago. Wow. Which is terrifying. Um <laughs> And we've been playing that area for the whole Philadelphia area for that entire time. Uh, so we've released a lot of that stuff. And um, we uh, we have a website, Fusion35.com. Yes. And you can get to all of our portals on Facebook and uh, Instagram and everything else that, from there. Uh, Bandcamp, which is the, yeah. the big uh, music discovery site these days. And uh, you can find us on Spotify and iTunes, everywhere. So and we're still, we just released a new song called Apple this week. You'll be seeing that uh, on all the streaming platforms. It's on Bandcamp right now. Very cool. Very cool. And I see you came prepared, dressed with a shirt that is full of cassette tape. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's weird. Like, I, I like the retro vinyl thing, and there's mm-hmm. actually, like, an audio reason mm-hmm. to like vinyl. There really isn't an audio reason to like cassette tapes. That's but, true. Uh, <laughs> that is very, very true. But, yes. but um, the nostalgic quality, like, yeah. I, we, we talk about the mixed tape challenge. I mean, I used to make... <laughs> Oh, I was like impeccable oh, with those. I <laughs> Me mean, too, I, man. I would have it down at a second. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if there was thirty seconds of space left, I would find, find something. something to put. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no wasted tape. Yeah, no yeah. wasted tape. What uh, was your preferred length? I was a CR ninety guy. I was a ninety guy too. Yeah, yeah. When they got the one twenty, it just the felt tape wrong. was too thin. <laughs> yeah, it was. The tape was too thin. It would get wrapped around. Yeah, and sound bad. All the time. Yeah. Sound quality. Yeah. 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 Oh well, yeah. Well, sound quality on cassettes. But worse than worse. Yeah. But yeah, ninety is a really good. I mean, you know, when you talk about film length, I mean, I always feel like 90 minutes is a good film length. Mm. Uh, You're not wasting any time. You're Mm -hmm. kind of getting right to the point. Um, And with that, I mean, you could really build a thematic uh, mixtape and it wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be overdoing it and you would kind of want more. That's what they always say in in our show business. Leave a wanting more. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, so that's 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 awesome. Thanks a lot for that. And I guess, you know, before we get started with the actual mixtape challenge, I always like to ask everybody what they've been listening to lately. So I'm going to do a little segment called What's on Loop. And why don't I throw to you, Melissa, what have you been listening to lately? Anything been stuck on your iPod or any, discover anything new? As of late, I've been listening to a lot of him because hmm. the band just announced that they're retiring. This is their last oh. tour. Yeah. Uh, first time I'd ever seen them was a couple months ago. And... It was just awesome, and I'm going to miss them a lot. <laughs> oh, that's always a shame when one of your favorite bands 
you know, signs off. But you never know. I mean, how many times do people send yeah, that? Uh, yeah. Fingers it's crossed. True. But if they come back, I hope it's worth it. Yeah. Because if they're leaving for a reason, if they just feel tapped out, mm-hmm. sure. then it's time to bow out. It's yeah. Uh, their albums have been phenomenal. Yeah, go out on a high note. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do a Seinfeld. Yeah. <laughs> end, it, end it before it goes down. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. That's good. Pat, anything? Uh, I've actually been listening to the new Beck album, Colors. Oh, my yeah. God. Such a great record. Uh, I, I really love It's like a return to his fun phase. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And even though it's, it's strangely dancey, but I, I'm not a big dance music guy, but, like, it, it doesn't bother me with him. Like, he's so right? perfect on every... I, I always talked about, I'm a big, like, I'm, like, fascinated with, like, the, the idea of postmodernism and hmm. um, different artistic forms, and I always felt like he is the postmodern music artist, um, because he blends... He does. Everything you can yep. possibly imagine, seamlessly, like, you don't even realize yep. it's happening, and he can be, you know, he, he can be really brilliant, serious, you know, yep. serious songwriter... This tongue-in-cheek um, fashion. Uh, he's, kind of, I mean, in a sense, he's like Bowie in that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. But he doesn't try to be, like, he doesn't, like, I'm now the thin white duke. Yeah. Uh, he just does it. And <laughs> yeah. he doesn't care. Yeah, um, he's, he's like a really humble yeah. kind of a guy. And he, I almost picked this as my uh, What's On Loop, because I've been oh, hooked wow. on that record, too. Yeah. <laughs> because his last record, Morning Face, so years and years ago, um, when Sea Change came out. Yeah. Sea Change was, you ever have an album that comes out at just the right exact in your moment life. in your life? <laughs> yep. Where you're, I was in a really rough place in my life when that album came out. And I, when it just was the revelation, like, this album speaks to me. And I had that album on loop forever because it yeah. was just, everything was so perfect. And then Morning Phase felt like a spiritual successor to see change to me it was a little yeah. bit more optimistic you're right but still had a really that it was that almost a nostalgic kind of feel like when i'm still listening to something that i have this emotional connection with but it's kind of refreshed and new and colors felt like to me like the spiritual successor of midnight vultures it definitely does in a way yeah, yeah. right yeah because midnight vultures is so far and away different than what you hear on an album like Sea Change or yeah. Mutations. Like, he yeah. just kind of goes back and forth between these two different, like, you know, kind of mellow, melancholy style. And then there's in-your-face, crazy, electronic, dancey. Yeah. But it works, right? But, but you're right, yeah. Morning Phase definitely, it almost feels like a sequel to... And it, it's strange. Like, you don't see that in music too often. No. I mean, Bowie kind of does it. it like he'll he'll kind of do that here and there. But, um, but yeah, I just love his stuff. I mean, I think he's a genius. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no question. No question about that. Yeah. I've I've loved everything he's put out pretty much since the beginning of his career. I mean, I've been a Beck fan for a long, long time. So I'm glad I didn't pick that because <laughs> then I would have had nothing to say. Um, but I was kind of between that and I, I've been going back through a war on drugs phase. Their album, and this is weird for me because I'm not usually a big Grammy award winning album kind of guy. They recently won a Grammy for A Deeper Understanding, which was the album that came out um, in August-ish of last year. And I've been a fan of, of The War on Drugs for quite a while now. And um, when this album came out, it was it literally blew my mind. It, was, it, it took me back to albums by bands like The Beatles, where there were literally no throwaway songs yeah. on the entire album. It wasn't based around one or two strong tracks with a bunch of other little, you know, songs just mixed in to fill time like every single song is just incredible i felt like it was like a work of genius and i had it on i had it on loop for 
at least a good month after that album came out. And I had to actually do a forced moratorium. I'm like, <laughs> I've got to stop listening to this album mm-hmm. because if I keep listening, I'm going to get so sick of it that I'm never going to want to listen to it again. It's going to ruin it for me. So I forced myself not to listen to it anymore. And I was on my way, way, way to work the other day and I was out of podcasts to listen to for the, and I was commuting in and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to throw some music on. So I just hit the shuffle and one of the songs from this album came up and there it was. I'm like, oh my God, I'm back into the war on drugs phase. And I immediately stopped it. And I started the whole album from beginning to end, and I've already listened to it a couple more times since then. But it's one of those albums I don't even want to pick out specific songs because I don't think anything is better than anything else. I mean, maybe I have some that I lean to, but I'm not even going to go there because it's just it's a great album to listen to from beginning to end, Mm -hmm. which I I know I talked about this on the last show. Uh, We were doing a um, the same on loop. A segment and I and we were talking about how listening to an entire album almost feels like a lost art now. Yes. Nobody wow. puts a whole album. It's all you know. You buy one or two tracks, your favorites, and then the rest of the album just goes away. But you know, I, I've always been. I was brought up in the whole you know listen to the entire album. It was you put the needle on the record and it went all the way through. And you flip the record over, and you went all the way through, or the cassette. You put the tape in, you press play, yep. and you went all the way through. Because it just took too much freaking effort to try some tracks, right? So it kind of forced you. But this, to me, is one of those albums that feels like it was crafted to be a whole. Yeah. We are meant to experience it from beginning to end. And everything just flows so well. I don't know if you guys have heard this or not, but I, I didn't even realize it had been nominated for a Grammy. I was secretly happy about it. I'm like, <laughs> okay, all right, I get it. These award shows are so contrived. But, oh, it's so kind of cool to see this guy get these guys get recognized yeah. for something so good right is the song pain on there yes it is i love that song yeah it's amazing yeah it's absolutely they're a philly band right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. They're like I, royalty like you know it's when you be I, i've been in the scene for so long <laughs> that uh you hear like oh there's this band coming up and you know it, and you kind of like start getting dismissive because you've heard you've heard it so many Sometimes, times yeah and then it's like oh my god yeah <laughs> like this is the next thing it's kind of cool, like when it comes out of your area. I know yeah. that's that's. You know, belabor, <laughs> we can save this for an after chat yeah, yeah, yeah. sometime. There's another one of my favorite bands when I was in high school was a Philly based band. We'll go we'll go through that later. We'll do so, another mixtape on Philly based band. <laughs> yeah, we'll do it. That, there you go. The oh, my there could be, oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! That could you? Yeah, could, yeah. That is your task. Come okay. up with a challenge for Philly based bands. All right. Three five. Uh, I was gonna say yeah. Really, have his own band. Yeah. Nice. All right. All right. We're going to do this at some point, but we got a we got a regular show to do here. So let's move along uh, into our actual mixtape challenge. All right. Before we start the challenge, I want to let the listeners out there know that uh, you know we have copyright restrictions, so we really can't play music on the show as much as we want to. But once we talk through all of our mixtapes, we will be creating those mixes on Apple Music and Spotify. So make sure you check the show notes uh, for details on mixtapechallenge.com, or you can follow Four Song Mixtape on either one of those services or on Twitter to find out more about our mixes as we go along. So I'm going to spin the magical random wheel here to see who gets to go first. Mr. Pat, you will be up first. So tell us what your title of your mix is and a little bit about your methodology. Okay, so I kind of went with, I mean, I imagine we all did this to some level. This isn't necessarily what I think is the best use of music Hmm. in film of all time. It's more what affected me, like in a real visceral way. Nice. Um, I love it. 
And like most things I like, it's very dark and disturbing. Yes! <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, that seems to affect me in a much more visceral way than happy things. Nice, um, nice. So the title of my mix is called Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Uh, I'll get back into why that is called that. When we finish up, because I, it might give away things. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to delve inside. That title seems very familiar to me, so I'm yes. not going to delve into that too much. Yeah, don't, yeah we'll, we'll get to that. Okay. And okay. before we dive into it, yeah. the hardest thing probably has been creating these playlists hmm. and not being able to share it with each other. Oh, yes. yeah. You know what? That bears mentioning, because not, I don't know if anybody listening to the show knows, but we do not share these mixes with each other until we are here live on the show and you guys being a husband and wife and living together it's hard it was painful hard it was absolutely painful and I think I think I might know one okay I, I might just based on a little nugget of information about one of the tracks and I was like ooh, ooh. so if I am correct I'm yeah. going to say yeah I figured that out okay alright <laughs> but so I, I, I might be wrong I might be wrong that's your, that's your cue people out I hope there. it's not bending the rules we'll, we'll, see. we'll see that's fine it's fair well, Melissa made the rules. The rules. Yeah. Yeah, how is it bending the rules? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Oh, you did ask me yeah, if yeah. this could meet the criteria. And right. I said I didn't okay. Care, so. Not to, you know, get, not, not to bore our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, basically, I'm going with, the, the main theme was a kind of what affected me in nice. a way that is lasting. And then it turned out that these were all darkish and nightmarish things mm-hmm. that, uh, and that, that, came with the title so fair enough um, okay so should i dive right in you know what yeah why don't you dive right in with your track number one okay so track number one is from the 2001 film donnie darko oh i almost right. went in that direction okay. go yeah. I'm, I'm so happy i didn't go, go. go which is just you know i love that film i i understand some people have some problems with it because of like the looping time nature mm-hmm. of it i love that stuff i mean it it's just right up my alley. <laughs> and, of course, the soundtrack is amazing. I mean, every song is amazing. It's perfect for the period. So, uh, Richard Kelly directed this. I, he, I don't know too much of his other work, but I think this is one of his first films, if not the first film, and it just mm. knocks it out of the park. So, in the intro sequence of this film, they play the song The Killing Time. Oh, no, The Killing Moon, sorry, by Echo and the Bunnymen. Nice. Uh, it's from their album, the Songs to Learn to Sing, which came out in 1985, which would fit the period. It's a couple of years earlier mm-hmm. uh, than when the film takes place, but it would totally be within the uh, scope. This really, it, it's such a brilliant use of the song. I mean, if you've ever heard it, and which you, which you can on the, uh, it has a really uh, atonal uh, lick to it. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little off-putting. If you like, if you if you're a musician and you're playing around with this lick, you're thinking like, "This mm-hmm. sounds wrong." <laughs> uh, it helps. It builds the mood, the atmosphere of the film, which mm-hmm. is, you know, a very little things are off. They use it in a way to kind of set up the entire film. I mean, you have like these slow motion panning sequences where you're seeing all the characters you're going to be meeting. Nice. Um, lyrically, it could not be more perfect. I mean, the chorus is "Fate up against your will." Not to be a spoiler of the <laughs> film outcome, but I mean, that is just a major theme of what this, the main characters is, is, uh, up against. I, I can't speak enough about the, the choice of the song in terms of setting the mood for the entire film. Now, the one remark I will have is they released a director's cut of this film ah. a couple years after that. 
And I guess Richard Kelly, when he originally envisioned the film, hmm. had another song that he couldn't get the rights to in mind for that opening sequence, which is which was um, In Excess's Level Tears Apart, uh, which is a good song. But I have a great Cure cover of that song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I like that song. But it is not. I turned it yeah. off. I couldn't watch it. It hmm. ruined the entire feel of the film. Like, nothing is better. And just to cut <laughs> in for a second, yeah. it's an opening credit yeah. sequence. This is telling you right away, here's the world we're entering into. Yeah. So you yeah. saying that it changed everything. It did. It really does change everything. I couldn't watch it. Wow. Yeah. I'm glad I haven't seen the director's cut yeah. of that film yet. Mm. When, yeah. when, when uh, they released it on Blu-ray, I'm like, this isn't direct. Like, I had to make sure. <laughs> like, I will not watch that. I want that. the theatrical cut. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, if you're talking about, as we are today, the idea of how music affects film, mm. that is the perfect example. because. Yes. I can actually point to if you didn't use that song, mm-hmm. and it's a complete different experience. Yeah. Just the the atonal nature is like a discordant feeling, mm-hmm. and the whole movie is discordant. Like he's yeah. like out of time, and mm-hmm. he, mm-hmm. he he's he's out of place with yep. everyone else. I mean, it's so perfect. I can't really speak enough about it. <laughs> yeah, so that that was my first choice. Awesome, Melissa. Reactions? Oh, I I love it. It's funny you bring it up. Because that film was on my list, oh. but I went with a different track, which I will save. Oh. Maybe oh. if we ever Sweet. do a different edition of wow. this mixtape challenge. Um, it's an amazing soundtrack. But no, it's funny as soon as you said it, because I'm like, yeah. And as soon as you said Donnie Darko, my head went to the song, I connect with it. Okay. Oh Not that yours is great. Yeah. The music in that film was just so perfect. Yeah. Absolutely wow. perfect. Wow. Um, but I also think you might have, if there are any... Teachers out there in the audience, film teachers, you might have brought up a really good example to bring into a film class. Yeah. Show the theatrical cut of Donnie Darko. Yep. Or at least opening sequence. And then show the director's cut opening sequence. Just to, like you said, to illustrate the power yeah. yep. of setting the stage and how one little thing, you mm-hmm. change it, you change the whole world. Now, because the internet is the forum for uh, debate... I have seen people say that they prefer the in excess mm. opening, which I think is why. Did they say why? I don't know, but obviously it's incorrect because. Of <laughs> <laughs> nice. uh, but but um, you should hear the argument that why shocked. that worked better for yeah. them because I, I feel the same way yeah. you do. But I'd like to open the floor. Why did they connect with that? Yeah, I mean thematically, it's not. It doesn't even make sense to have the in excess. I mean, yeah, I could write a paper about why. <laughs> Yeah, this song, "The Killing Moon," is perfect yeah. to open yeah. this film with, um, and an excess song. I can't, I can't give you a single reason why, other than it's from the period. time period. Yeah, yeah from the time period. Yeah. Well, this is a good chance we can open this up to the listeners. Yeah, and tell us if you prefer the NXS opener. Tell us why. Yeah. we'd be interested to know. Absolutely. Know. And thank you for you. Thank you for um, picking an Echo and the Bunny. It's like it takes me back. Yeah, I had a friend of mine after I graduated high school who was a humongous Echo and the Bunnymen fan, and but just takes me back to a different time in my life. <laughs> um, all right, so track two. Okay, yeah, track two. What do we got? All right, so track two is um, from a TV movie. Oh, this is what I think I okay. might know. I think. Oh, out of the box. Um, and if it's not, it is directed by Mick Garris. I'm sure you all know his work. Oh, no. I have the whole library. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait. In the box set of McCarris. Uh, 
But it's uh, Stephen King's The Stand. Excellent. And what's the song, okay. baby? <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. The, the song is... Uh, I knew this one. I, I predicted this one. The song is Don't Fear the Reaper mm-hmm. by Blue Oyster Cult. Yep, yep. From their 1976 album, Agents of Fortune. A lot of cowbell in that song. Yeah, yes. Well, here's the thing, and I actually addressed this in my notes here. Um, <laughs> this is another opening sequence nice. of a film. Yeah. Um, and you're talking about, like, setting the, the mood... It's just, you're panning across, your, it's like a first perspective, almost feels like a single shot. Mm-hmm. It isn't, but you know, you're, you're, you're the camera. Yeah. Uh, and you're going over this, you know, now just decimated landscape of people who have died from yeah. the disease that was, uh, you know, minutes ago, just, uh, um, let out on the world. And you're seeing like what, you're getting a feel for what you're going to be seeing for the rest of the entire, miniseries and the song is just perfect obviously i mean lyrically you can't think of a better song <laughs> um and at that time i mean i was young uh but i just remember that yeah, was a while ago yeah it was yeah. like 1990 or 1989 or i'm sorry 1994 i wrote it down it was 94 yeah yeah wow i remember wow. being but earlier still, too yeah i was still in high school and you know yeah. blue Easter cult was not you didn't hear it that much at that time. No. But- uh, I knew that I had heard the song probably before, but that, like the images, whenever I hear that song, it's the first thing I think of is just that feeling of watching that. I can't tell you what this song evokes for me, but I don't want to date anybody here, but, and, and please don't feel bad. It's my mom's ringtone. Oh. <laughs> wow! Yeah. Oh my god! It's my mom's ringtone. Yeah, I actually helped her buy the ringtone from the little ringtone store. Oh, wow. how cool! Yeah. So carry on. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. You connect to different things when yeah. you hear this song than what we connect yeah. to. And I mean, uh, you brought up the cowbell. Yeah. It was pre-cowbell joke, so the pre-cowbell song joke, yeah. still had its mystique. Sure. Uh, not that it doesn't now, but um, I mean, if you think about the, the song itself, I love as like a musician because it does something which. I've kind of been always fascinated with. I do a lot in songs I write. Um, it's called droning. So that riff, because the reason why it's like it sticks in your head so much is because it keeps droning the, the G string, the open G string. So it's playing around that string while that string just keeps ringing out, and it just burrows into your brain, and um, it creates this eerie feeling. And uh, it's just it's an incredible riff. I mean. I mean, you could spend your whole life trying to write a riff like that. Um, so that that works really well with like you know creating this vibe. This you know it's it's so big, mm-hmm. um, and you're entering this whole big world and like the life and death stakes. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, really, I I'm amazed. They I guess maybe because of the uh, time period, I'm amazed they could get that song, <laughs> the rights to that song. They probably paid yeah. a lot for that. I'm that was, sure. But yeah, it, it was just the perfect mood setter for that and uh it really like i I had like a real i was like i'm gonna love this and i will say i mean that's many series is hit or miss on some elements there's some great stuff yeah some really bad stuff i'm sure they didn't have a lot of money for effects and things of that nature but uh that was a home run to me it makes me think but i i gotta i gotta go back and comb through my my library of soundtracks and think about familiar songs being used in a in a film, something that's that you already are are, are familiar with. Yes, and how, does that actually endear you to something that you're about to watch or are already watching? In fact, I think one of my one of my picks actually does fit that mold. 
it, it made me like the scene more because mm-hmm. that that was used in it. So, and it's it's interesting to me that you're you're you said that when you heard the song, you automatically say, I'm going to love this. Yeah, because you love the song. So obviously they they chose a, a good song for that because that was what they were trying. They were going for that. Yeah, they were trying to evoke that. Most of you any reactions to this one? This is going to date me. I had never heard the song <gasps> until I watched the miniseries. So for me, wow. that was my first exposure to it. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Again, the nightmare world that yeah. we're about to yeah. drive into. This is insane. Yeah. Um, but it also brings up an interesting point that you just made, Jeff. I wonder if it works in reverse. If there was a song that I had loved and it was connected in a very dark, heavy mm-hmm. way where I'm like, mm-hmm. no, you've just perverted this art that I've been mm-hmm. so attached to and no, it's not meant to be like this or perceived this way. So it could work yeah. the other way. And I will add, him does a phenomenal cover of that <laughs> song. <laughs> Just everything comes back to him yes. for me. But What's well, funny you say that because I was like, the, uh, one of my notes here is the first time I ever heard this song in quotes because I feel like I had heard it before, but the first time I really, really like yeah, hit heard me, it, right, heard the lyrics. And really got it. Yeah. And yeah, I just... I couldn't say enough about it. Like, I could watch that over and over again. That that opening sequence. Yeah, look, I never really thought much about it because I've mm. seen I've seen that miniseries and I I remember that and I, I never really thought about it. But the lyrics, the, the vocals have a very haunting tone. Yes. Oh yeah. yeah, for a rock song. Yes, it feels like um, a funeral. Like, yes, it does. Yeah. that's yeah. that's why I think that maybe one of the reasons I work so well. Yeah. In the stand is because you know it, it gives you a sense of foreboding. Yeah. Not not because of not necessarily because it's it's telling you what's going to happen, but it's it's giving you a, a an audible sense of what you're you're getting into when married with the imagery. Right? Yeah. So yeah, fantastic. Yes. Yeah, some of the lyrics, um, they actually mention like forty thousand men and women every day that die. Right. You know? right. <laughs> Which is not really an accurate number, but it gives you a feeling yes. of what you're going to be seeing. Scope and scale. Yeah. yeah. And I remember just reading, like, over the years, like, the band being really upset. Because I think there was a controversy at the time mm. that they thought it was inspiring people to commit suicide. Really? And uh, because he mentioned yes. Romeo and Juliet. Right, and Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, together And eternity, don't fear yeah. the Reaper. Fear Why the, should yeah. we be afraid of this? Well, the, the band... Seasons is, don't fear the Reaper. Right. Nature, mm-hmm. it's natural it's really, that we die. Yeah. The band was really uh, upset about that because they're like, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> like, we're, we're talking about you shouldn't live your life. Fearing death, yeah. it's inevitable. Yep, yep. Like, just live your life and, you know, mm-hmm. don't have this be your ultimate fear. It's part of part of life, part it's of human season experience. Yeah. 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 yeah, human experience. So that, yeah, that, I can't say enough about that one either. <laughs> yeah. Really, fantastic, fantastic <laughs> yeah. pick. Yeah. So, um, all right, track number three. Okay, so <laughs> the track number three is from Vanilla Sky. Oh. The 2001 film by Cameron Crowe is a big music guy, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so he had one of the great soundtracks of all time. I mean, really. I mean, I can't think. Uh, there's only one or two soundtracks I can think of that even compete with it. There was a song written for it by Paul. He got Paul McCartney to write a song for it. Yeah, uh, I, yeah I remember uh, yeah, that. that. I didn't pick pretty that. Pretty significant. Yeah. And that was a good I mean, how many times do you get... These really crappy forced songs for albums. Oh, yes. God, yeah. yeah. And that is a good one. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> Well, it's Paul McCartney. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't yeah. think he, even if he tried to screw no. it up, yeah. I think it would still be brilliant. No. I mean, he does, he'll come up with some stinkers sometimes. Oh, yeah, there, there are quite a yeah. few. I mean, yeah. I'm not going to belabor any of those, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's probably better than getting maybe what, you know, Kenny Loggins to write a song. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Holiday Road. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Without it? Danger Zone. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So I didn't pick that one because that's, that would break the rules if I had picked it. It would have broken the rules. Yeah. Very much so. So I picked Porpoise Song, the theme from Head by the Monkees. Uh, I'm actually looking at... <laughs> oh, my God. Some kind of box set of it right now Those in this room. are the Rhino handmade box sets. Wow. <laughs> and that is the soundtrack to Head. And by the way, I will just tell you right now that I have a very, very big affinity for the Porpoise Song. And I'm going to ask you which version of it they used, if you know. Um, was it the album cut or know. was it the okay? So I don't there, think it's the whole song. Okay, so there um, was a there was a shorter abridged version of it that wound up being the lead in track for the record. Okay, but there is an extended version with a longer outro on it that is actually uh, on several different monkeys collections and box sets. But there's like a yeah, so yeah, I'm sure they must have used a shorter, more abridged version. Yeah, it's kind of. Um, have you seen Vanilla Sky? I have, and I do not recall. Well enough. I saw it one time. But I don't recall it well enough to remember which one it was. I'm gonna have to try to look it up. Okay. So it, it's the album head was 1968. It was the film, right? It uh, was a film. film. Yeah. Um, and that was around the period where monkeys were trying to establish a real like artistic vision outside of what had been perceived as the you know the TV Beatles Hard Day Night knockoff. They were they were becoming their own. Mm-hmm. Stepping in in her own, and I I've seen Head years ago, and it's pretty trippy. It is. <laughs> it is the only, it's the only movie that I know where you can start it at any point and watch it all the way around, and it loops perfectly. Wow! Really? Yeah. It's 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 pretty visionary. It's pretty visionary. Yeah. It's a, it's a it's a very 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 strange film, but it's brilliant in its strangeness. I don't want to get too much into it. Yeah, yeah. At this point, but. But fascinating that it would appear on Vanilla Sky then. Well, yeah, I have other reasons why it's fascinating it appears on okay. Vanilla Sky. <laughs> like this is like this might be my best choice in terms of. I agree. Like I'm meta. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, this is like there's like a meta reason why this is a great song. Okay. Okay. okay so this is played a scene where like reality is breaking down for the Tom Cruise character, the main character. He's with. What he believes is a current girlfriend who is like morphing into mm-hmm. a past girlfriend, and you know they're they're having sex, and it, he, she's changing in front of his eyes, and mm. he, he's like literally screaming, "What the hell is going on?" Uh, and they're playing Porpoise Song during this. Some of the lyrics to the song are coming into my head right yeah, now as you're describing yeah. the scene. Well, yeah, I'm looking. I I brought most of the lyrics. I could oh, find. he came prepared. Yeah, because I I wanted to refer to some things like. Wanting to feel, to know yeah, what's real. Yeah, wanting to feel, know what's real. Yeah, uh, wanting to be here and see, crying to the sky. Oh, my God. Uh, which, uh, I mean, that's perfect for the rest <laughs> of the film. So I want to listen to the song right now. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's, I mean, that's incredible right there. But then there's like this whole other level that this works on, mm-hmm. which I'm sure Cameron Crowe instantly, probably when he saw the original film, was it Open Your Eyes? Yes. He probably already had this in mind. <laughs> Day one. Because, as you know, head opens with Mickey Dolan's falling, mm-hmm. jumping from Committing a bridge. Committing suicide. Really? Suicide. Yeah. Oh, as this, it begins and ends yeah. with that. As the song, yeah, as the well, song plays. We should be careful not to give spoilers to the films. Well, I think you're gonna, I have to. Uh, it's an one. older film. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. I, I love this movie. Yeah. It is a wonderful film. So, uh, yeah, of course, I mean, the, the entire film hinges around... A choice that Tom Cruise has to make of jumping uh, to wake up, in a sense. And that's why it works so well for them. I mean, 
it works in head for that reason. It works in this for that reason. Mm-hmm. And then I saw a couple of notes when I was just like thinking about the song. Like it was written by Carol King, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Weird. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I did not know that. The Monkees had so many incredible songwriters writing for them. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. Goff and King. There's quite a few. Wow. Yeah. Neil Diamond. I mean, God. Yeah. Tons of them. And then there's kind of a side note that I had to bring up because of an inside joke that Melissa and I have, which I'll discuss, you know, I'll bring you up to speed on. Fantastic. Um, so, you, you know, you probably have these channels. There's like a ch- antenna TV. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Retro, all these, all these retro fringe channels. channels. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes on Saturday mornings, we'll be flipping through channels and there'll be this old 50s show called Circus Boy. Oh, yeah. Mickey Dolan's. Yep. I did not know until today. That kid is Mickey Dolenz mm-hmm. from the Monkees. I didn't know that. <laughs> and you know, oh I'll tell you another thing. At the at the end, the last track on the Monkees' first self-titled album called "Gonna Buy Me Dog," there's actually a joke in that song. Davy says to Mickey, um, um, "You can't train dogs. You can only train elephants." Oh my god! <laughs> All right, so you can't train a dog to do that. You can only train elephants. Nice. Is the line. He's yeah. billed as something else in Circus Boy. but I, I would have to think so, yeah. because yep. obviously it would have popped to other people before that. But but yeah, it says, written by Carol King, lyrics call into question the order of the world and one's place therein. Mm-hmm. And there are also veiled in-joke references to Dolan's child, childhood work as a star of the television series Circus Boy. And there are some, like, when you listen to the song, there are actually, like, musical cues of, mm-hmm. like, that kind of organ grinder sound. Yep. Oh, wow. Um, it's just, when I saw that, I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, <laughs> we would watch this show. I mean, not to get off too off topic, but it seemed like every episode was a fire. Like, that was, like, the we got to save all the animals from a fire. Like, yep. they had no out, out, end game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um so it's just funny to me, hopefully yeah. to our listeners as well. Great pick. <laughs> very partial to that pick. <laughs> Melissa, please, uh, you know, stop me from gushing. Oh, God. Uh, Vanilla Sky is one of my go-to films. Nice. Th- that's one when it's on TV, Pat knows, no matter what I'm doing, everything stops, and I sit, and I take the adventure. You were talking about an album that really hit you at the right time in your mm-hmm. life. Yep. I pretty much have wanted to be a filmmaker ever since I was a kid. Vanilla Sky... Seeing that in theaters, I said to myself, I want to do that. Nice. These are the kind of stories I want to tell. And I know I can. I know I can do this. Um, So, yeah. So, whenever that film comes (laughs) on, it's just, Mm -hmm. I have such an affinity for it. And it it got me through a very dark period in my life, too, where Ah. it was like, do I want to continue? Not really a spoiler about the film, but I can continue to live Mm -hmm. thinking one thing. Or I could say, no, I don't. This is done. This Mm -hmm. story is over. Am I going to move forward into the future and reinvent mm-hmm. myself? Because I think I'm worth it. Oh, my God. I can't believe you just said all that. Because one of my picks is a film that did the same thing for me. <gasps> really? That Vanilla Sky did for you. Yes. And I'm not wow. going to flip okay, that no. hand. But. I can't wait. We, we're going to get there. But. Nice. Yeah. This is, this, this is one thing I love about this challenge. Because a lot of the stuff that we're talking about and we're going to talk about are things that impacted our lives. And yeah. change the way we thought or perceive things, and this is phenomenal. Thank you for that song, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna run this into the ground. Um, so let's move on to track four. Okay. So this was a tough one because of all the secondary songs that were on my overall list. Ah, <laughs> the so, forbidden honorable yeah. mentions. So, yeah. So I'll bring them up perhaps at a, mm. a later date. Um, Foreshadowing. But, yes. Mm. <laughs> 
So this is really, I mean, it was hard to find a, you know, topper for this. And there's a lot of directions I could go with it. But because of the other three, you had this, like, existential, where's my place in the world? <laughs> um, I felt like I had to stick with one of my go-tos, which is, I'm a huge David Lynch fan. Um, Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So... The 1986 film Blue Velvet. Ah. I had to go with In Dreams by Roy Orbison. Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. Okay. No, it's great. No, it's okay. great. Okay. Um, okay. Um, Melissa's having a conniption. I know. No, because it's just, it's a great scene. Yeah. It's... So, I I kind of think of, um, I mean, I could go and we could have a whole other podcast about Blue Velvet. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh I yeah, I kind of think of this as like the like a prequel of Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Um, it was almost like him testing the waters for certain yeah, yeah, ideas. Yeah. And I just remember I got I remember the first time watching this, thinking like this is this is amazing. And it's like it's putting it's like transporting me to like another world. Like he he created another world so well that I feel like it's achievable, or mm-hmm. I could just walk into it. So there's a scene where Dean Stockwell. Is oh. yeah, isn't he amazing? Uh, oh. uh, and this is like pre Quantum Leap, or maybe around the time. No, it's pre. I think it's pre Quantum yeah. Leap. Uh, so I, I, I the film was eighty six. So yeah. I don't know. I thought Quantum Leap was later. You might. Than, I'm right. pretty sure Quantum Leap. I, yeah. Yeah. It. We're sounding like idiots. No, no, <laughs> um, no. I swear to God, Quantum Leap yeah. was later than that. Um, I'm going to go with that. Yeah. <laughs> so there's uh, a scene where Dean Stockwell we, the 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 main characters of the film kind of all congregate at his house, mm. which is, of course, like completely bizarre. You know, there's like these characters who don't talk; they just kind of sit on a couch. Mm-hmm. There's this incredibly odd vibe of unsettled. Uh, we don't even know what's happening. There's like a room off to the side where there's they're holding a child uh, captive. Half the characters are completely okay with everything that's going on, and half are completely terrified. <laughs> The main villain, played by Dennis Hopper, yep. <clears throat> enters, and he uh, requests Dean Stockwell to do a performance of In Dreams. Uh, and it seems like this has happened, we get the impression this has happened quite often, <laughs> that it's a common request, because Dean Stockwell is ready. Like, he, <laughs> no, no problem, I'll do it. Um, he's very, um, it's hard to describe, he feels like he... He has an affectation that he is some kind of 40s nightclub performer or something that he just carries around with him, even though he's clearly not anything. (laughs) Uh, So instantly, they put on In Dreams, and Dean Stockwell comes around a corner with, you know, this drape that he's... uh, David Lynch is huge on drapes. (laughs) Um... (laughs) That he's kind of like hugging against, and he has this workman's light, which I just love because David Lynch has a way of looking at everyday objects, seeing them as something else, mm. and it's a kind of a childlike thing. Because when I was a kid, you know, if I was doing something like you know pretending or something, you would see things like, oh, this could be a microphone, or this could, and I re- I actually remember as a kid seeing one of these my father's a carpenter I, mm. I would see one of these hanging in his basement and thinking that looks like a microphone mm. and it works so well because I mean the, the light you know it looks like a microphone he's miming with it the light lights up his face in like a 
completely eerie way. I mean, the way you, hmm. you know, when you put a, a flashlight under your chin, sure, yeah, it highlights all, yep. you know, the external things and the shadows. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just sets the mood. Yeah, yes. pretty much. Uh, it just sets the mood so well. Yeah. And then you get to the actual song, which is, Roy Orbison is a really beautiful singer. Mm-hmm. He's also a strange singer. He is. Uh, <laughs> he is. He has this falsetto that's a little yeah. weird. And he... His persona is weird. Mm-hmm. So, he, you know, he knew Elvis. He, you know, was friends with Elvis. But El- he was like the opposite. Of, he was like the anti-Elvis. He was. Uh, Interesting. Where Elvis would mm-hmm. dance around and like... Yeah, Roy thinking, was very... He was like, yeah. I'm going to stand there. Stare, stoic. I'm barely going to move and just going to sing. Yep. Um, and I have this like weird whitewashed visage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Hair that doesn't move. Yeah. And glasses that don't move. He, he yeah. almost seems like a, a David Lynch character. Yes. No, when you're describing <laughs> a, it, I'm thinking yeah. the scene matches yeah. the voice. It yeah. really does. Yeah. And uh, the song itself, I remember reading like years ago that he, it came to him in a dream. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he had a dream where he heard a DJ saying, this is a new Elvis single. And, and he's hearing the song, the Elvis singing the song. Uh, which obviously didn't happen. And then he woke up. It's like, I have to finish this. And within like 10 minutes, he finished the entire song, which I'm still waiting for it to happen to me someday. <laughs> I always hear these, these, uh, you know, Paul McCartney, like, Oh yeah, I had a dream. And I wrote, let it be. Yeah. <laughs> or I had a dream that I wrote yesterday. He, I mean, where, where are they getting these dreams? How do I do it? <laughs> yeah. I, I've never been able to write a, a song based on a dream. Yeah. <laughs> I could probably write some interesting screenplays based yeah. on my I dreams. Was say. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And then there's like another element to it that it's not specifically relevant to this, but it's, I thought it was interesting to bring up. Um, the song is like two and a half minutes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were short back then. Yeah. And it goes through seven movements, like mm-hmm. distinctly different parts with different melodies. Interesting. And they all flow together perfectly. You don't even realize it's happening. I mean, it's really brilliant. And I always think of, I mean, really the nature of this entire th- podcast is seeing things in a different way because mm. of something else. And yep. uh, I feel like a- another thing Lynch does really well is a transformative use of things. So, mm. so it's impossible. I mean, if you ever see Blue Velvet, how can you ever hear that song and, and not think of that again mm-hmm. in your life? Yep. I'm not sure how Roy Orbison's family feels. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, but I mean, the first image I think of is that, and yeah. um, it uh, like we went to a, a, a kind of there's a place in Philly called the Philly Mocha, hmm. and uh, it's in what they call the Eraser Hood where Lynch used to live. In, ah, in gotcha. Yep. And they often have like Lynch related events. Um, so we went to uh, something recently, and the host came out dressed as the Dean Stockwell character and did that performance with the Workman's wow. Light in a completely pitch black room. So all you're seeing is his face. Wow. And it was incredible. That's and, fascinating. And you, you even got, I mean, even though you know, like, this is completely removed from that, there's a little, yes. that vibe was there. And I was mm-hmm. like, wow. Like, that's just, nice. that image is just so potent. So, uh, yeah, that was my topper for this one. Uh, <laughs> Melissa, you you were smiling that yeah. entire time. So I know you've got something to say. I just, I, I love David Lynch. Mm. He is... Someone who influences my art. I don't know if I could ever write anything quite as crazy and disturbing. It's probably best I can't write anything that crazy and disturbing. But no, he's a huge influence. And in my film, Leaving Virginville, 
there are little nods to Lynch mm-hmm. throughout uh, in a very uncomfortable bedroom scene. Yes. <clears throat> yes, yes, yes. Which is very Lynch inspired. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, there is a giant poster of an eyeball mm. looking through red curtains, close up shot of an eyeball mm. looking through curtains, which is actually my eyeball. Oh, wow. Yeah, that I, I had did not taken. Know that. Yeah, I did that specifically. Um, one of my production designers with me, I said, I need a shot of this wow. and I want to blow it up and put it on the wall. So I'm the godlike creature peering through the curtains Phenomenal. down wow. on my characters, which. Deep, dark, very Lynchian. Yeah. I remember discussing the, the bedroom scene with you after uh, the film was over and we were at the after event. And I remember specifically why that, that stuck in my head was I've become so tired of the current ways of storytelling uh, in a lot of modern TV shows. That scene stuck out to me so much because it was more about what you didn't see. Mm-hmm. And your mind had to fill in the blanks. So... I feel often, and this is a sidebar tangent, I feel so so often now TV and movies have, feel like they have to show you every single thing or you yes. won't get it. Yes. Like we don't have any powers in, in our minds anymore to, to conjure up what we don't see. And that really stood out to me in that scene. You know, I knew exactly what was going on in the background <laughs> yeah. of the scene. It's pretty obvious. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, you were, the camera was so low to the ground and, you know, the, the action that was taking place was you know, above and, and off screen. And it was awkward enough where I was sitting in a seat going, Oh, awesome. <laughs> I know what she's experiencing right now. Oh, so awesome. <laughs> yeah. So sidebar. Yeah. All right. So, you know, what? before we move on to Melissa's picks, um, Pat, why don't you run down real quick, uh, film and song tracks one through four, just to repeat them all. Sure. Um, so number one was, uh, Donnie Darko, 2001 film by Richard Kelly, the killing moon. By Echo and the Bunny Man, you can find it on Songs to Learn and Sing. Nice. Number two was The Stand, 1994 miniseries directed by Mick Garris. <laughs> um, song was Don't Fear the Reaper brought by Blue Oyster Cult. Mm-hmm, the album mm-hmm. was Agents of Fortune, 1976. Uh, third song was Vanilla Sky, 2001 film by Cameron Crowe. The song was Porpoise Song, the theme from Head by The Monkees. Wow. You can find it on the album Head, uh, Came out in 1968. And the last song was In Dreams by Roy Orbison from the album In Dreams from 1963. Uh, it appeared in Blue Velvet, the 1986 David Lynch film. Fantastic. Uh, Fantastic. I just wanted to note, now I can mention the why the title is Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Yes, which <laughs> is Stephen King. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. It's it was a, Steve- a compilation book, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I just felt like that, because it is a Stephen King film in this, mm-hmm. there's, you know... Everything is pretty much involves dreams. Um, Very apropos. So I felt like it, it worked well for this. Uh, well done. Sin. Thank you. Well done, sir. Thank you. Excellent, excellent mix. Well, <laughs> looks like it is time to move on to our second mixtape, and that would be from Melissa Whiteley. The mic is yours. Track one. Oh, no pressure or anything. The title of my, my mixtape is called Songs in the Key of F-Stop. Oh. Okay, so some people are familiar. I just, I gotcha. the audience might not know, a kind of basic version. An F-stop is an opening that lets light into a camera. Mm-hmm. So if you ever see a, if you're not familiar with what a professional lens looks like, if you ever see a lens, there are numbers on the camera, and the numbers on the F-stop relate to the size of the opening. Mm-hmm. So talking about how I structured my mixtape, Songs in the Key of F-stop, 
I went with a more personal connection mm -hmm. rather than a popular one. Although one song I think on my mixtape is going to be quite noticeable the <laughs> second I mention it, but we'll see. We'll see if that happens. And I arranged the songs based on the energy of the film it comes from. Hmm. Oh. So I'm starting very dark with my F-stop set at F-16. Oh, I <laughs> see like, where you're going with this. See where this is going? I gotcha. Top gun. Then ending fun and feisty with the F-stop at about F-4, since there are four mm -hmm, tracks mm -hmm. on them. Wow. Tape. Mm -hmm. So um, a little, the F-4 is a little bit of a darker theme, but a little more fun. Fair yeah. enough. Okay. All right, so. <laughs> First song on my mixtape, I'm picking up where my husband left off. Uh-oh. With Blue Velvet. Oh. From the movie Blue Velvet. Two Blue Velvet picks. Wow. <laughs> That's why the second you said Blue Velvet, I'm like, oh, man, you're killing me. But we went with oh, different good. directions. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I went with the Bobby Vinton yeah. theme song, Blue Velvet. All right. Um, it's track five off of his 1963 album, Blue on Blue. Awesome. Now, little interesting side note. The album was originally titled Blue on Blue because of the success of that single. But oddly enough, later that year, it was re-released as Blue Velvet. Weird. Because I guess Blue Velvet was the bigger track. Huh. Interesting. So, I mean, I'm hoping I'm giving you the correct information when I say... Yeah. Wow. That, I mean, I'm calling it Blue on Blue. Yeah. Because that's how it first hit. I'm sure we can find it either way. So I said, of course, um, the 1996 neo-noir neo mystery was written and directed by David Lynch, <laughs> starring Kyle MacLachlan the awesome Dennis Hopper, mm. Isabella Rossellini, and Laura Dern. Blue Velvet opens the film as we see images of picture-perfect America. And an unidentified man has a heart attack. The American dream all of a sudden turns into a nightmare. The music begins to fade away as the camera pushes deep into the grass. We go underground, and the last word we can hear Vinton saying is year, hmm. which I just found eerie and interesting. Then the audio is completely taken over by the sound of a microphone moving through the grass. Hmm. And we end up with a close-up of bugs on the <laughs> ground. This is why I love David Lynch. <laughs> and much like you were saying, you felt like this was a precursor to Twin Peaks, yeah. kind of experimenting. I think the majority of us travel through life looking at it, at least where we live, through a very mm -hmm. optimistic lens. Sure. Everything's picture perfect. Everybody's friendly. Everybody is beautiful and wonderful. And I don't know any human being that's all good. Mm -hmm. Dig deep enough. We all have this <laughs> yeah. little core, the id that we're maybe working on suppressing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I love that Lynch is like, no, I, I want to know that little person inside you. Mm -hmm. I, I want to explore that. That's the interesting person to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that he took just this beautiful classic song and perverted it. I, I dig it. It's yeah. dark. It's disturbing. But I, I like being challenged. What must it be like to be the artist who creates a song and then 30 years later, 20 years later, 10 years later, somebody uses your song in a way that you may have never even thought about or intended. Right. And it works. In a right? different way it works. Right. Exactly. That's got to be a really strange feeling. And I wonder how you get permission to do it. Because I, I couldn't I imagine David Lynch is go. I mean, I don't know how long Bob, if Bobby Vinton's still with us, or hmm. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't mean to be offensive if he is, but when somebody pitched his estate or him and said, "Hey, yeah. this guy David Lynch, he's kind of a wacky filmmaker. He wants to use your music." A smart musician, just yeah, t telling my husband, um, would say, 
can I see what the story's about first <laughs> before I say, oh, yeah. oh that's awesome. You're going to mm-hmm. revitalize my career yeah. or maybe tarnish <laughs> my career, career permanently. I mm-hmm. don't know. Yeah. I know a lot of artists have very tight control over how their music is to be used and I, with good reason. Absolutely. Absolutely. Within good reason. I mean, you know, we, anyway, I was going to go on a different tangent <laughs> there, but I'm not going to because this is not a political show. Oh, okay. But um, please, Pat, you have a reaction? Um, I'm a big fan. <laughs> Obviously. Uh, yeah, I feel like we just, we, we, it was a good segue, like good timing. Too. Perfectly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think, I, I wonder if there's a different, if there's several recordings of that song. Cause I feel like I read, I feel like on Sirius, like a couple weeks ago, I heard a version of it that I had never heard before. Huh. Um, and even in the, in the beginning of the film, we don't get the whole song. So maybe I just heard like different parts of it. But it felt different to me. I, I, I'm curious if there's different recordings. It could be. Um, mm. And then the, what else is great, I mean, we act, we get the performance of the song in the film, too. You know, Yes, yeah. yes. But Dorothy, the character played by... Um, Isabella Rossellini. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dorothy Bellis. Uh, and, I mean, that is key as well. I mean, mm-hmm. it, when we were talking about um, the Roy Orbison song, I mean, the Dennis Hopper character is this maniac. Mm-hmm. And it seems like... Certain songs can almost appease him. Like, that's the only huh. piece he has. Yeah. And Blue Velvet is one, and, and the Warrior song is another. And, um, yeah, I mean, you'll see Isabella, Isabella Rossellini uh, performing this song, and it's not a great performance. Uh, it's almost... Inten- it's haunting. Yeah. It's almost intentionally, like, she's a little bit off. Hmm. And Des Hopper is just transfixed and, and completely in this... You know, it's France. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. I I can't uh, recommend it enough. <laughs> <laughs> the film is very disturbing yeah, now. Yeah. It is. It is. It is. It and is. I often wonder We're if We're going to rename this the Blue Velvet Podcast. <laughs> I do not have any picks from Blue yeah. Velvet. <laughs> All right. Just uh, flip my own, flip a little bit of my own hand there. Mm-hmm. But um, excellent. Excellent pick. So track number two. Track number two. And again, structuring these, I tried to have them flow naturally. Mm-hmm. So if I was listening to a mixtape what song would transition nicely to the next? Um, and this is another one that Pat's just going to roll his eyes because <laughs> no, he, he knows that there are certain films that are go-to films for me. Mm-hmm. And it's like the world stops. And when he comes home and I'm watching this movie, he knows that I'm working through something and I'm in a dark place. My second pick mm-hmm. is The Blower's Daughter by Damien Rice, featured in the film Closer. Um, yeah, it was track three on Damien Rice's, I think it was his first album titled O from 2002. Um, and Closer <laughs> is a 2004 drama directed by Mike Nichols, starring Jude Law, Julia Roberts, Clive Owen, and Natalie Portman. The film, and I know it was um, adapted from, I think it was a 97 stage play, hmm. but it's disturbingly honest, and I appreciate that. Race's song opens and closes the film, and I said, and it's just perfectly thematic. Again, I don't want to give too much of a spoiler away, but in my head, I like to pretend that I'm cool as Natalie Portman's character in this movie. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, it's whenever I end up going back to New York, I went to film school in New York and have since moved away because it's very, very expensive. Quite expensive, yeah. And I like eating. I love film, but I kind of dig eating as well. <laughs> so one's going to win out or the other. So well, One sustains life. I know. Well, wait, they well, both but sustain which one? Life. I was going to say, I'm they challenging both sustain you. Life. Which one? Um, so that's why I moved back to Jersey after I finished film school. But when 
I go to Manhattan in my head. I'm walking down the street like Natalie Portman. I really just think I'm that cool. I'm sure nobody's looking at me though. Lustfully. That's, that's all in my head, but I'm just like, I'm that cool. I'm that confident. But yeah, the Damien Rice film, Damien Rice film, the Damien Rice song that opens the film. Mm. I have to think if I was going to say Mike Nichols, but I think we need to give credit to the musical directors because they might be the people that are pulling these songs and presenting them to the mm. filmmaker saying this matches. Mm. This is great. So whoever discovered the song and said to Mike Nichols, hey, this is awesome. It just he deserves a pat on the back because it is so perfect nice. that I really, really had to research to make sure it wasn't written for the film. Yeah. It was yeah. just so awesome. And it opens and closes the film. And there's a huge revelation at the end of the film where the Rice song is playing. And it's just such a punch in the gut. So every time this comes on on my iPod, I'm just like, yeah, closer. Nice. Pat, reaction? Uh, it's a great choice. I mean, I I don't quite have the connection to the film that Melissa does. I mean, I, I like the film. But it's never, I don't think it's quite ever gotten me the way it gets to mm-hmm. her. But the Damien Rice, does he have more than one song in that film? Is that the only one? I'm not sure. Okay. But that's, like I said, it bookends it, so yeah. that's the one that I go mm-hmm. to. It definitely really fits the vibe of the film really well. Uh, I mean, this, the recording itself, he gets incredible um, use out of, I mean, he gets a big sound out of just him and a guitar. Yeah, he, uh, that he does. It sounds like, you know, ten guys, and it's it just him and his voice is so powerful, and uh, and whoever the engineer was did a really good job. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I like that choice. Yeah, Very good. Very good. And I'm thinking, too, I probably connect with it because um, Jude Law's character is an author. Mm. Writing uh, a story about yeah, his yeah. American girlfriend. Yeah. And my big thing is I want to be like Zelda Fitzgerald. I want to be a muse <laughs> and an artist, equally respected for both. So it's sort of um, like, yeah, I guess I get to live through now. Lofty Portman. aspirations there. I know. Lofty. I know. <laughs> But yes, I get to live through Natalie Portman in that sense that it's like, yeah, I'm crafting this character yeah. that's just so enticing that I'm I'm inspiring you as an artist. And then, of course, Julia Roberts is a photographer. Oh, that's so right. So that kind of, as the screenwriter that I am and as the filmmaker that I am, it fits yeah. in both categories for me. And the exploitation, one of my favorite scenes is when she's at the gallery show, Natalie Portman is looking at a picture that Julia Roberts had taken of her. And she's saying that... Which, um, Natalie Portman's actually crying in the picture. And it's like, well, why is this picture beautiful? It's fake. But because it's like mounted on this wall and everybody loves to connect with emotion, that's why it's beautiful. But it's not real. It's just hmm. an image that you don't know the backstory behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of challenging art what? in that sense that makes me really connect with the film and what they're talking mm. about. What? Mm. I'm resisting going down another road with that, but <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. Interpretation of art is a whole nother show. <laughs> We're coming up with good ideas. Yeah, yeah we are. All right. Um, what was that track two? That track? That was track two. Number three? Yep. Leading into three. Okay. Um, and this is the one that I think I pitched to you when I was saying ah. that, oh, this might be a good theme if we wanted to try this. Fair uh, enough. So we're going from really dark, slow, blue velvet to the blower's daughter. And then I believe the last thing that Damien Rice says, um, can't take my eyes off you until I find somebody. And oh, the music almost drops out. And he just says, no. Hmm. Then hmm. I think we're kicking into track three. 
Lust for Life by Iggy uh, Pop uh, featured in Train Spotting. So we are completely right. shifting yep. gears now. We are very much shifting gears. Yes. Yeah. Um, Lust for Life is track one on the album Lust for Life, released in 1997. Did I say ni- yeah, 1977? Yeah. I was like <laughs> oh, 1997. Minus 20. Minus no, 20. 1977, but the film Train Spotting was in 96. Oh, okay. But I think I saw it the year I graduated high school, which was yeah. in 97. So I'm definitely. Hmm giving away a clue to my age, <laughs> like the films didn't. Yeah. Um, yes. So what was interesting about Lust for Life when I was researching that, it's performed by Iggy Pop, but I didn't realize it was co-written by David Bowie. Yeah. yeah. Which I think is kind of cool. Yep. So Train Spotting is a 1996 black comedy directed by Danny Boyle, starring, he wasn't really well known at this time, Owen McGregor mm-hmm. and Johnny Lee Miller, who both had very healthy careers, but mm-hmm. we didn't know who they were back in the day. Uh, this film follows the exploits of four friends as they try to overcome their addictions. Yep. Mostly heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, but one character played by Robert Carlyle, Begbie, his addiction is more violence and alcohol. <laughs> which I thought was interesting because when I started coming up with how do I explain this film, he's not a heroin addict, but he has his own addictions that are just as dark. I said, Lust for Life blares as the film opens and our main character, Renton, runs down the street giving his great choose life speech. Which ends with, choose your future, choose life. But why would I want to do a thing like that? (laughs) Now, this came out in 96. I was so obsessed with this film when it hit video. So Mm. I guess we're talking, it was 97 at that point. That I I actually put a microphone up to my TV and recorded on a cassette tape. Oh, I've done that. The whole film. (laughs) <laughs> so when I would drive into school, my senior year of high school, every morning, I, I started with Iggy Pop, Lust for mm-hmm. Life, and Train Spotting. And it's like, yeah, there's and to this wow. day I still kind of connect with those characters. Crazy. Yeah, it's it's weird. Um, just when I look back at stuff that's influenced me, the way Closer closes, the way Train Spotting closes, they really do influence my work because my character open endings are important to me. Because life is an open ending. I don't know what's going to happen to me when we finish this podcast. True. So to predict that and just wrap everything up in a nice, neat little package, mm-hmm. that's false. It's true. It's a good point. I never really thought about it that yeah. way. Yeah. It's brilliant. <laughs> Nobody has anything to say now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a we're dork. All, this yeah, is how I connect all... with art. Well, I love this choice because that, that, that kind of re- reintroduced, me, reintroduced me to the song. Um, I'd heard bef- you know, I had heard it before. Um, but it's, it's so perfect in that film. It is. Um, like, just the momentum. Like, that song has a very, like, propulsive rhythm. Mm-hmm. And with the running, I mean, it, it just works so well. And just, you know, the themes of the film. Uh, you know, everyone has... They, they're all, you know, they all have different reasons for going on and, you know, different um, goals, like, mm-hmm. for living. And, and uh, it, it's really smart. I remember... Uh, after Bowie passed away a couple of years ago, we, I did a, a tribute show with uh, a bunch of other bands in Philly. It was really fun. Everyone picked a couple songs. Nice. We couldn't repeat any songs. Oh, wow. And someone started playing Lush for Life, and I got really mad. I'm like, <laughs> like no, that's not right. <laughs> and I knew like Bowie had produced that record, but I didn't know he had co-written that song. And uh, I looked it up, like, okay, everything's okay, fine. Enough. All right, all right. <laughs> all right, false alarm. Let's play Sanger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> um but yeah, that was a, a period where Bowie produced like three records in a row for Iggy Pop, and mm-hmm. um, and uh, he 
he later kind of um, confessed to he was trying experiments on those records that he was really? afraid to do himself. Really? Yeah. And he used Iggy Pop as like a guinea pig. Nice. Um, he felt bad about that, but it worked pretty freaking well, I thought. Um, and the song is so perfect. Yeah. I mean, even from the artist that it came from. Yeah. Drug addict. Right. And But the song is Lust for Life. Yeah. You clearly don't have a lust for life if you're willing to stick a needle in your veins. So the irony yeah. of that. Well, it, it's, it's interesting because you think like maybe they do. Like, like yeah. maybe it's or just, just an elevated the, sense. The drug they want to feel. Yeah. yeah. I feel a different way. You know, for some yeah. people, and you know, I don't, I don't want to tackle the gigantic yeah, no, topic no, no, of no, mental don't. illness, but I know for some people, certain substances can actually help them experience life because they are in such a, a state yeah. in right. their own mind that they, they can't. So sometimes some of those substances can, you know, flip that one switch that needs to be flipped for you to be able to experience certain things or, or have a deeper appreciation for music or movies or, uh, you know, even just the world around you in general. Yeah, so that's true. Maybe it's entirely possible that um, you know someone who is a you know, heroin addict may be getting something more out of that um, using that drug than what we might think. Yeah, you know, just a just a high. Maybe it's opening their minds to other things. What I love about yeah. that track, though, selected with that too, is um, I know Trainspotting was actually originally a novel that was adapted mm-hmm. into a play, and I'm going to pronounce his name wrong. I'm sure. Ewing, Ewing Bremner played Renton on the stage, but he played Sick Boy in the film production. Huh. Hmm. So I was just kind of like, wow. Wow. Not a step down, but just a completely yeah. different change of character. So that kind of had to be fun and interesting to explore the story from a, from a different, different lens. Yes. Wow. Um, but I, so I never really read the stage play. What I love about the film Transpotting is they reference Iggy Pop and David Bowie in it. Yeah, so in kind yeah. of this postmodern way, we're poking fun at, it, yeah, we open the film with this classic song that everybody knows. And because the characters idolize this guy. Yeah. But the song is from the 70s. And I'm trying to yeah. think when the film took place because I thought it was supposed to be modern day. I thought it was the 90s. So, yeah, it's like, why are you stuck on the past? We're moving forward, babies. Wake up and come with us. There's a weird thing, not to get off track, but um, that sequel came out last year. Yes. And I read that Edinburgh actually had a complete revival in hmm. in their t- people living there because they wanted to go there because of train spotting. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole crop of kids there hmm. that are only there because their parents like train spotting. <laughs> and train spotting, yeah, too, yeah, acknowledges yeah. that yeah, within yeah. the ah. context of its universe. Fascinating. Yeah, it's, they're just skilled yeah. filmmakers. I wow. love them. But yeah, it's uh, top notch. Very cool. All right. Well, final track, track four. Okay. And the note I made about this is I started in 63 and I'm ending up back there. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we started Deep and Dark, Blue Velvet, The Blower's Daughter. Now we have a little bit more energy, Lust for Life. And I'm closing with a popular one. Uh-oh. But okay. I know I have to because it's so important to who I am as a filmmaker. Okay. Okay. Miserloo, the opening credit oh. sequence to Pulp Fiction. Fair How enough. can you not All go right. there? Yep. Yep. Okay. So I said, um, this was interesting when I was doing my research for the for the podcast. Miserloo is actually a Middle Eastern folk song hmm. that dates back to the 1920s. Interesting. Yeah. Because when I was trying to find an original recording, hence the confusion with the track, I'm like, well, wait. Who originally authored the yeah. song? Or are we going to do the recording that we're most familiar with? 
Yeah. So I just kind of threw it all in there for you. Fair enough. Dig deep. So yeah, obviously Pulp Fiction features the Dick Dale recording. But it's listed as the Miserloo Twist on the 1962 album Surfer's Choice as track six. Wow. Mm. But that's kind of why I was coming to you saying, you had mentioned something about Blue Velvet where just... There's other... It doesn't sound quite right. I think there are. I mean, especially back then. Hmm. Yeah. There's a weird thing of like... Contemporary artists covering each other's songs within a year of each other. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It happened yeah. all the time. The a Beatles used to yeah. do it. Yeah, like yeah. and nowadays, can you ever imagine anyone doing that? No, no, no. It's almost like they felt like there was a shortage of songs. Today, right? <laughs> today, it's now a remix. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Right. That's yeah. They take the same song and just mix it differently and add some extra stuff to it. But yeah, no. But back then, that was not uncommon. Yeah. For even for for a hit song, especially for yeah, other artists to cover it, you know, a year later. Yeah, I mean, th- think of Chubby Checker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, anyway. So yes, I was saying. I'm. I mean, I'm listing it on the '62 album, but there, I heard a closer version of it featured in a 1963 soundtrack called "The Swing Affair." Hmm. So I'm just not sure yeah. where to go with it. Actually, um, and then I, of course, Pulp Fiction. The highly stylized 1994 mm. <laughs> crime drama, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, yep. featuring John Travolta, Uma Thurman, Samuel L. Jackson, and Bruce Willis. It's, for those who haven't seen it, it's a film where various characters straight from a Pulp Fiction crime novel intertwine. It's basically classic Tarantino. Just oh, yeah. sharp dialogue, super stylized. Mm-hmm. Um, and it opens the film after discussing the merits of a robbery. Two of the characters in the film, Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. Decide to hold up fellow patrons in a diner. Miserloo kicks in and the credit roll opens and that's <laughs> where we begin. Tarantino plays a huge part in my film career. He's a tough one for me to describe because I do love his work. I don't think he would be mad or anybody who's a fan of him would be mad of me saying he's a thief. Oh, yeah. He's very, very influenced by every film he's ever seen. And I, I wish I could find a number of how many films he's actually seen. Because it has to be in the millions. Millions of movies. I think we've all discussed, too, as an artist, it's very difficult to create any kind of original idea. Mm -hmm. Everything in life, at least in our generation, I think you can trace back to. Somebody could say to me, oh, yeah, you know, well, that shot reminded me of Ghost World. And I'll say, oh, I wasn't intending that. But, yeah, you're right. I did pull that from Ghost World <laughs> subconsciously. So we are all going to be influenced. Tarantino, sure. though, just has a way of taking all these influences, shoving them in a blender, and packaging them. And it's like, this is this is a Tarantino work mm-hmm. based on these stories that moved me. Yeah. And I feel like now we have a generation of other people that are mm. trying to be like Quentin Tarantino as opposed to being influenced by him. Hmm. And I'd rather see that. I admit to my Tarantino influence, I'm not as sharp or witty as Tarantino. I the beholder? <laughs> well, I, I don't think so. I, I'm not... When I was younger, so we're talking, this was my junior year in high school, maybe sophomore year, my goal was to be the female Quentin Tarantino. That's what I was telling people I wanted to do. Hmm. Okay. Just dark, dark art, vicious. Hmm. But then as I got older, I was like, no, I kind of don't want to be like anyone else. Yeah. I want to be me. I can be influenced, but I definitely want to have my own voice. Hmm. With age comes wisdom. Usually does, Pat. Any <laughs> wisdom for us on this one? Great choice. Um, when I I used to work at a restaurant, and my uh, 
one of my coworkers would bring in his CD collection and we'd listen every night to his collection of CDs, basically. <laughs> so there are certain albums that are like so – I've heard of them literally <laughs> hundreds of times. I mean, mm-hmm. that's not an exaggeration. It's probably more. It might be a thousand. <laughs> um, and he would play this almost every night, the wow. soundtrack. And he would really kick off with that. Yep. And I have like really like distinctive memories of hearing that. And I, it was before I had seen the movie. So then I saw the movie, and I'm like, oh, they get all... Because there's dialogue in the soundtrack. Yeah. Yes. Um, and uh, that song is just really... Now that you mentioned that it has like a Middle Eastern root. Yes. I can see it, because yeah. they, 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 that mode. I like, highly yeah. suggest yeah. researching the Middle yeah. Eastern origin song, because yeah. it's, as soon as they play it, I'm like, oh, God, of oh God, it makes sense. But yeah, I didn't... I wasn't familiar with it at the time. Yeah, I mean, that, I, I mean it really just energy of the film like it's very you know quick paced and yep it is it, yeah. it, it really gets you into that feeling of the of the film and uh and we talked earlier we were mentioning beck as being like the postmodern like you, you, this is exactly yes. what melissa was saying in terms of like one of the elements of postmodernism is hybridization mm-hmm. and he does that like he's with, a master without i don't even think he's trying to do it i, I mean, agree I think it's just what comes out. Like, and that's what's so frustrating. Because, he right. flawlessly does it. And it's like, man, I'm trying. Because he's seen he's seen so many things. Like, this is what's come out. Like, you know, I like all these things. And this is what I write. <laughs> and, this, you know, this is how I want it to look. And he just blends it so it, it all fits together. And it, it's almost like trying to jam, like, puzzle pieces that shouldn't yeah. fit into a puzzle. And he does it. Like, yeah. he, he, like, clips the edges and makes them fit in perfectly. Fantastic. Would you do us the honor of running down your four picks again? Absolutely will. So I started Dark with Blue Velvet, Bobby Vinton from 1963. Track two is The Blower's Daughter by Damien Rice from the film Closer off of his 2002 album titled O. Track three, we pick things up a little bit. Lust for Life from Trainspotting. Mm-hmm. Track one off the Lust for Life album from 1977. And then back to 63 with Miserloo. And I'm just going to say, for argument's sake, we'll say it's on the Dick Dale album, Surfer's Choice, even though that's debatable. Excellent, excellent mix. Well, I have a lot of work to do to, <laughs> to catch up to the two of you with my uh, my four-track mix. Well, I guess I'll just dive right in. Um, my mix is called Well Before 4K. Oh. <laughs> All the tracks in my mix are from 1987 or earlier. So, dating myself, just as we date ourselves. Um, so, all obviously well before 4K, right? So, all of them are used in films that had some kind of significance in my life, whether it be like a childhood high point, the preteen awkwardness that everyone goes through, or adult introspection. Sadly, there, there didn't seem to be really a great order to put these songs in or tracks in since they're all very different stylistically, so I just kind of went with what my ear thought sounded like the best order. I dog-fooded this mix many times, <laughs> which means I forced myself to listen to it uh, many times before I actually uh, uh, settled on a track order, so I feel okay. This challenge was interesting for me because I revisited a lot of old memories searching for the tracks that I really wanted to put on this mix, and I think like you guys, I had a few that almost made the cut but didn't quite make the cut. And just to give a little bit of a hint, it is a four-track mix, 
Um, hmm. Just a little bit of a of, a, of an inkling there, because yeah. So anyway, I'll, I'll I'll move on. And so, but thank you for Melissa for suggesting it. Um, it was it was a pretty exciting. It was a lot of fun to go through these, and and I relived a lot of my um, my past when I was going uh, some back through some of these films and some of these songs. And the first track on my mix is the one that I thought Pat and I might have duplicated simply because of the image that you showed me before we started recording, but. Once I, I, I heard Pat's uh, modus operandi for making his mix, I thought I was safe. This one is from 1986, Transformers the Movie. <laughs> and I, I guess you can you can see this coming a mile away. It is, and people people mistakenly think that this song was written for this film, but it was yes, not. Yes, go, because I know exactly where you're going with this, this go. This song was not. It's called, it's a song called The Touch. Yep. It was by Stan Bush. It's the first track on the Transformers soundtrack from 1987, and... This song is actually almost a double pick for me because the song that this the movie that this song was written for is another one of my 80s favorites. It was a Stallone film called Cobra. Oh wow. Oh, yes. This song was originally written for Cobra. There's a Cobra picture. And I have a Cobra. Yeah. That is the John Caffrey and the Beaver Brown band single from Cobra, <laughs> which actually was a song they picked in favor of oh my the God. touch. It all for comes this together. Film. Yeah. It all comes together. Yes, it's hanging on my wall as we speak. And this song, for me, uh, exposing a little bit more of myself, this is always my opening and closing song whenever I play Rock Band on my nice. Xbox. I do have this a downloadable version that, that was part of the Rock Band catalog, and of course I had to have it. Um, so this song really reminds me of being an 11-year-old kid sitting in a movie theater with my best friend Stevie. Um, it was a small, two-screen, community see cinema, and it was really weird that they even got this movie. Because the, they had usually would have they would have two films and they'd be in there for three or four weeks. So for them to get like a one like a smaller film that only ran for like two weekends was a big deal. And I remember we were, we were hoping so much that the theater would get it because there was literally no other theater anywhere close to us. We would have to get somebody to drive us like an hour north to like Paramus or something <laughs> to see a movie in a, in a multiplex because there just wasn't a multiplex. The theater no longer exists, sadly. Uh, it was in Eatontown, New Jersey. The movie was a big deal to us as kids because we were big Transformers fans. And, you know, sitting there and seeing – we were watch, used to watching it on our small little, you know, nine-inch television in my bedroom. Um, but to see the Transformers on this humongous screen was just – it was mind-boggling to me. And But at any rate, this song plays during a really – impactful action sequence in this movie right it's the ultimate battle that the kids were waiting for it was the pretty much the battle to the death between optimus prime and megatron right and you have some really great iconic lines you know one shall stand one shall fall i mean come on it's super cheesy but man to to a kid who was a Transformers fan, this was what this is what we did with the Transformers toys, right? When we were playing in our room, they would fight, and it, you would hear this in your head, and it would be this big, gigantic thing. So this was huge for me. As the action's happening, you know, Optimus Prime transform as the song begins to play. You know, you hear the opening uh, riff, and he's transforming into the robot and jumping into battle, and smashing, just smashing through all these like <laughs> wimpy Decepticons to get to Megatron and. He's just taking tons of them out left and right. And he's, you know, the big iconic hero, you know, leading directly into the one-on-one face-off uh, between the two. All the while, this song is playing in the background. <laughs> so as a young kid, this was so, so powerful to me. I mean, now I can watch it as an adult and, like, I can appreciate the memory. <laughs> right, nostalgia. nostalgia. Yeah. And it's not the same. It doesn't have the same impact. But as a child, uh, it was it was huge. I, I got really, like, when I 
actually had this in my iTunes library, and I, I played it. I hadn't listened to it in a while, and I haven't played Rock Band in a while. When I played it, I got kind of choked up a little bit, <laughs> thinking about the fact that I was going to use it for this challenge. And cool. <laughs> so I thought I really thought that we might have duplicated on that for some reason, Pat, but I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that we didn't. I'll throw it out to you guys. Well, I was a big Transformers fan. Um, that movie was traumatic for children. <laughs> oh, my, oh, my God. Uh, Crying in a movie theater. Yeah, I mean... I, I'm surprised. I mean, well, I guess, you know... In, in Can I interrupt for one second? Yeah. I don't know what the age of your listeners are, but I'm thinking, we're not talking about Transformers that is right. in theaters now. The cartoon. No, no, no. no. This, this, is like yeah, this was so 1987. This was, this was the end of Gen 1 Transformers yeah. before Gen 2, right? So if you're a little younger, you might want to research exactly what... Yeah. Pat and Jeff are talking about yeah. because it's not Entirely, the Megan yeah. Fox. This is the Transformers original this is Transformers cartoon. cartoon. Yeah, back in the eighties. So yeah, the series was on for years, and then they had yeah. a, a finally a film version. Mm-hmm. And you know, your favorite character dies. I mean, that's not a spoiler. It's been what thirty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but and, um, your, and your favorite villain gets transformed into something else. Yeah, he essentially Weird. dies. Yeah, he's transformed into a different villain. Right. <laughs> oh, God. And. It's just creepy. There was like this force. Was it like a cube planet guy? It yeah, Unicron. Scary. It was a. Unicron, it was a giant yeah. planet. A planet that ate other planets. A robotic yeah. planet that ate other planets, but transformed into a gigantic robot. Right. I mean, it was scary. It was. <laughs> um, and that's like. And I mean, now that I think about it. I mean, all the Disney movies have death too. Of course. Um, but of course. But this was like someone you grew up with. Like this is like your. You expect. You know, you don't want to see this character die, and like, and. It was interesting to see that. That was a bold choice for something you're trying Extremely to get people out. Extremely bold. And he yeah. dies very early in the film. Yeah. Interesting. This is pretty much the opening of the movie where wow. Optimus Prime dies. And then it's the then it's the journey of the, the Matrix of Power, which gave Optimus Prime his leadership right through the hands of a couple of other potential – a potential leader who can't use it. And then it it's eventually lands in the hands of a, you know, a young roguish yeah. – <laughs> Autobot by the name of Hot Rod, right? He turns into yeah. Optimus Prime. So, all you never wanted to know about the Transformers movie, <laughs> listeners, but that—that's my first pick. Um, well, can I just interrupt you one second before you, you go can. to your second? Sure, sure. I thought where you were going to go, where that song is featured, was in Boogie Nights. I did not go there because Mark Wahlberg is with um, John C. Riley. That's what they're yeah. playing. They, yes, they yeah. go oh. because when I heard the song, I had to research. So I was like, "What the hell is this?" You got the, the touch. Yep. Din, din, yes, the it's yep. so brilliant. And he's, but again, the postmodern Mark Wahlberg, who was yep. originally a recording artist before yeah. he became an actor, is in a studio rocking out ridiculously to this song. Oh, and I'm like, amazing. where did Paul Thomas Anderson find this? Yep. And again, back to 97. I think either one of my friends or somebody I was dating at the time was like, no, Liz, you don't understand. This is a real song that he's singing. But yeah, so I you took it in a different direction than I, I thought. I did. But. I did. Super nostalgic, <laughs> nostalgic version. But uh, yeah, and of course I, another. I didn't really realize it at the time as I was a kid, but I, I have a very close connection to um, the original Star Trek series, and Leonard Nimoy does the voice for Unicron. So oh. Mr. Spock, my beloved Mr. Spock, who who influenced a lot of my life, um, was also part of the Transformers movie. So. All right, so closing, I'm going to go move on to my track number two, and it's another 80s film, 1986's uh, perennial Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Ah. Of course. But this might not be a pick that you're thinking it might be. So, you know, I think everybody knows John Hughes movies were 
legendary. And when I was a kid in the eighties, like he had a knack for making movies that just spoke to people of that age, right? You, you, you're, you're watching, you know, quote unquote kids on the screen around the same age as you. And it just, for some reason, it somehow oddly was your life up there on the screen. So I remember seeing this movie and I mean, everybody loved this movie. Who didn't love Ferris Bueller's <laughs> Day Off? I mean, you couldn't. But there was the track that I'm picking is actually the uh, Dream Academy instrumental cover of the Smith song, Please, Please, Please Let Me Get What I Want, featured in the art gallery sequence. Wow. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, God. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah, huh. you, you went deep. You yeah, went deep. I remember. So... I've always had a thing for melancholy music, right? Yes. And I have a very, very big thing for melancholy lyrics over upbeat music. Yes. <laughs> and so the Smiths always spoke to me. Morrissey always spoke to me. <laughs> and so I was already familiar with the Smiths version of the song. It was pretty medicinal for, you know, the awkward kid who didn't fit in, right? And nothing ever goes right. Just please, God, let me get what I want this time. Please, right? And... A couple of years later comes this movie, and I didn't, I never expected this to be in this movie, because, I mean, there were many songs used in that film that were not written for it. But, you know, so here I am sitting in the theater, and I'm watching this movie, and everybody's laughing, and it's, every, it's funny, and it's smart, and it's edgy. And then comes this scene where, um, Ferris and Cameron and um, Sloan are in this art gallery. And they're walking with these little kids hand in hand, and on comes this hmm. slow instrumental cover of a song that I already loved. And I'm, my eyes just open so wide. And if you watch that sequence, it is, it goes from playful and fun to really deep and introspective, yes. right? And it's so joyous. And you've got still shots of various paintings within the museum and, the music just seemed to fit the sequence almost as if it was made for it, although it wasn't. So we start to see them, the, the three characters striking various poses. So you've got a little bit of comedy in there. You've got a little bit of funny laugh, kind of smiley, you know. And they're observing the artwork in what almost looks like a sarcastic way, but it's not. Yes. <laughs> so you see teenagers actually appreciating art. <laughs> three teenagers who are, maybe they're not just a bunch of slackers cutting school. You know, they're intelligent, thoughtful people who are capable of deeply appreciating art and the meaning behind it. And then at the end of, at the end of the sequence, of course, you get this back and forth, this deep back and forth between Cameron staring at uh, a Sunday afternoon on the island. It's, it's going back and forth and each shot is getting a closer close up on Cameron's mm -hmm. eyes and a closer close up on the painting until it becomes the painting becomes just this mess. Uh, it's so close up, you can't even tell what it is anymore. There's pointillism. And it's right. Yeah. And you, you, you see and something that is in that painting, the little kid in the painting, Cameron is just connected. He's just transfixed on it. And you don't need any words to understand what's going through his mind. Just because you have the, the long, it's not a vocal uh, outro. It's a synthesized outro, but it's this long, drawn out, single note fade out at the end. And you're just seeing this. It was super powerful to me as a young kid. And even now when I watch that movie, that sequence still gets to me. Yeah. It, it was, there's a, there's some kind of a connection there. In fact, I, I remember I went to YouTube and pulled up just this, <laughs> when I wanted to use this track, 
I went up and pulled it up just to see if I was crazy. I'm like, should I really be including this? Am I really thinking too much into it? But I don't think that I am. So um, reactions, yeah. anybody? Well, that, that's my favorite scene in that film. So oh. <laughs> I, that, I just always love that scene. I love this, the music. I had no idea. No idea. And I'm a Smiths fan that that was a version of a Smith song that really changes everything. <laughs> Great choice. Thank you. You, cha- you changed everything. But um, think about what they did there. Yeah. They, did, they took a pop song yeah. that you're familiar with and we're changing it. We're changing yeah. the environment. So now we've got these slacker, rebellious teenagers and we're putting them in a different environment. And now mm-hmm. one of the characters is connecting with a character in a painting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So kind of that just like, yeah, you're, we're influenced by all this stuff that's going on around us, but sometimes stop, slow down. Mm-hmm. If we're taken out of where we are right now and placed elsewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all the same stuff. It's you're just right. presented a yeah. little differently. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just, I, I love that choice. That's a, that's um that's one of those scenes and like, you know, it kind of slows down the pace of that film because it does. they were like really just going nuts. And then yep. all of a sudden they're like, Oh wait, you know, we can't do this forever. There's bigger things exactly. out there. Yep. And is that before the whole catatonic thing with, um, yeah. Okay. It was, yeah. So that, that might I think be it like, jumps right to the parade after gotcha. that. Gotcha. Right. So that might be like the changing point of like, you know, we can't do this forever. Yeah. We're yep. going to be split up soon. Yep. Um, well, that's the lament towards the end of the film. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a great scene. Not going to belabor it. I've already said a lot of things that I wanted to say, <laughs> but um, the brilliance uh, of Hughes—it's just—I love that he he could take you know at the time these teenagers who adults would view as I don't want to say like ne'er do wells, but but slackers, but show a deeper side to them. So they're wacky. They're you know they're taking the car and they're going and they're cutting school and they're. You know, having fun and, you know, doing the things that quote unquote kids, you know, bad kids do. But then you see these glimpses of who they are and the fact that there's so much more than what the perception of them might be. So I just thought that was brilliant. And I, I love that they used a, a track that was already pretty special to me just in a different, uh, different way. Real quick before you jump off. Sure. He was never condescending. Right. That is what made John Hughes' work right. so powerful. Yep. They weren't flat characters. They were rounded characters. characters. That Yeah, well, maybe I'm a little rebellious. I'm going to put pur- purple streaks in my hair and I look like a freak to you. But you want to sit down. Yeah, listen to Marilyn Manson. But, oh, I also have a lot of classic literature that I've read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, surprising. Yeah, so, so, yeah, there's more to me than just mm-hmm. what you're seeing. And I feel like that's what he did is he, in all of his work, he really yep. approached teenagers with respect. Perfect. Great way to put it. Great way to put it. Good segue uh, into my next pick. And this is something that I was referring to during uh, Melissa's mix. Uh, the film uh, is Into the Wild. And the song is King of the Road by Roger Miller, uh, 1965, from the album Return of, Return of Roger Miller. It's the eighth track on that album. Uh, 2007 was uh, a year of a lot of change in my life. And I was going through some of the most monumental life changes that I'd gone through since I was a teenager. And just at the right time, the film Into the Wild had had just come out right at that kind of pivotal time period for me. And the story of Chris McCandless, um, I don't know if, ever, if, if you guys don't know it, maybe, I'm sure you guys have seen the film, but if anybody if you haven't looked this up, Take a look into this story, and it's, it's very polarizing. The story is very, very polarizing, but his journey 
had a very profound effect on me. And after seeing the movie, of course, I had to go get the book and do a lot more research into him and his life. And um, I'm not going to retread the story here, but suffice to say, the choices that he made in his life helped me to realize that there's no, you know, quote unquote, one true template for a happy life, right? A lot of people look at his story and say, wow, he was an idiot. He did, he did, what he did was really stupid and he went out into the wild unprepared and, you know, he deserved what happened to him. But, you know, there's, there are other ways to look at that. Um, so anyway, again, not, <laughs> not gonna do, but sometimes, you know, the ideals that, that we choose to live by are different than what society dictates as normal. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Right. I think it's perfectly fine. Uh, you don't have to live your life the way people expect you to. And you have one shot at it. And I think we should use it as wisely as possible. But so anyway, about the song in the film. So in the film, you know, we see Chris um, throwing his backpack into a, a cargo container in a train, a moving train. He jumps in and, you know, he's sitting on the edge uh, of the train, you know, making his way across the country. Uh, and he starts to shout the lyrics of the song into the air. And as the camera is watching him fade off into the sunset, it, the, the music fades in exactly at the point where he is in the lyrics. So Roger Miller's song comes in just as Chris is singing it. And this, this to me felt like a huge point of happiness for Chris. I mean, this is like the ultimate freedom for him. And I could totally see this song and this subject matter being really meaningful to him. So the fact that, you know, Sean Penn chose to have him sing that song in this movie felt genuine. We don't know if he actually did in real life right. or not, but I think Chris is kind of the embodiment of this song, even though his journey was many years after the song was written. But it's the vagabond that, you know, rides into town after town. He's drifting his way across the country, living free and loving it. It's a, I love how the song depicts what for most people would be a poor existence, but the character in the song is so upbeat and singing profoundly about the travels and the things that he finds, you know, along his journey. So it's the song, even the song kind of has the same overall feeling as the story of Chris McCandless. So this pick was actually kind of, I almost didn't include this because I didn't want to get too personal, <laughs> but you know, the, the, the story was very transformative for me and it, and it changed my life. And whenever I hear this song, no matter where, or when I hear it, I always go back to that scene in that movie and that, and what that that story had meant to me. So this is one of those songs that, you know, I had heard a million times before the movie, but took on a completely different meaning once it was used in the film. Um, reaction? Anybody? Melissa? Um, I've actually only seen bits and pieces of the movie. Now what? I feel bad. No, no, I feel no, bad. No, I feel Did we? Yeah. I, I didn't fall asleep during it? No. You're sure I didn't during yeah. the movies? Because I tend to okay. fall asleep. But... You don't remember it? For some reason, I remember the ending. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was, like you were saying, I think it's a very interesting story to Mm. tell. And yeah, it could be viewed as, well, what what kind of an idiot would do this? But I'm giving away some other work that I'm working on. But yeah, it almost reminds me, I've never read On the Road either. But Uh. the research that I've done about Kerouac, (laughs) just kind of on the road, Mm -hmm. that sense of there's an ultimate freedom in just saying, I don't like society yeah. i don't want to be yeah, part of this either. i want to yep. do my own thing so i mm-hmm. yeah carol's yeah. a big influence on the camera oh, well, yes. look at how brilliant i am and i didn't even do any research you know, on Thoreau it. and yeah yeah so, yeah yeah i i kind of struggle with the film too um but it doesn't excuse me from understanding the 
the vibe. Like, I, I, I mm-hmm. totally get that feeling of the message works for me, but I didn't love it. I mm-hmm. didn't love the film. Um, but, but that being said, I do remember that scene and it's really well yes. done. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I love stuff like that where they can kind of, where they really, you know, meticulously are able to kind of bring in the song to meet what the character's mm-hmm. doing. I can only imagine how hard that is. <laughs> yeah. Because I try to sing things that are meant to be together, mm-hmm. and it's hard. So that's, mm-hmm. that's tough. And the camera work alone in that shot, tracking a moving train. Yes. yes. With a, and yeah. Then, but, but, but slowing yourself down enough where he starts to go off into the sunset, and then it was, it was a moving, moving shot. Um, I don't know as much about camera work, obviously, as you guys do, but I could appreciate the cinematography yeah. Uh, yeah. in that sequence. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautifully shot film. I mean, it, oh, it's gorgeous. I mean, I don't even know what they used, but it was yeah. All those um, he's in Alaska. Is that right? He eventually yeah. makes Going. his way to Alaska. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing landscape. I mean, the shots are just incredible. Oh yeah, the the exterior, the vistas out there are just unbelievable. So yeah, I've I've been there once, but that's a whole another <laughs> another another podcast where we're inviting so many podcasts here. But. Okay, so I'll move on to my final track in my mix. And again, this is another track in my mix. And this is from a film uh, called The Truman Show. Ah. I'm a big fan of this movie. They This is one time where a piece of classical music that I had loved for many years was used to a beautiful effect in a film. And it's the second movement of Chopin's Piano Concerto Number no. 1, uh, Romance. Um, this is on, you can get this on the Truman Show soundtrack. It actually is the Arthur Rubinstein version, which is one of the most beautiful renditions of this. It's the eighth track on that soundtrack and came out in 1998. So I've always been a big sucker for piano concertos. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved them since I was a little kid. I was very fortunate. And forgive me, anybody who's listening to the show who has found your way to this show by listening to my other shows because I talked about my uncle. A million times on other shows, so forgive me if you already know about my uncle, but I was very fortunate as a child to have an uncle who exposed me to so much, uh, so many different styles of music. Um, he wasn't just a rock and roll guy. He had a humongous library of music, um, and he would sit me down and put these giant Heath Kit headphones on my head and make me listen to things so that I could get an appreciation for music. And of course, classical was no exception for him. Um, so I had to be uh, I had to be trained on the classics, just like literature <laughs> folks have to be trained on the classics. So this piano concerto has been one of my favorites for as long as I can remember. And of course, anybody who is familiar with classic pianists, Arthur Rubinstein is incredible. And this performance is probably my absolute favorite. I have several versions of this, but this is definitely my favorite. It's simultaneously playful and gorgeous and emotive and contemplative and it can take you through just so many different emotions as you're listening to it. And it's a long piece. It's a little over 10 minutes. This version is a little over 10 minutes. And um, it, it brings back a lot of feelings and memories that are very dear to me um, from my childhood, of course. And, you know, and it's attached to a film that spoke to me, right? So it's like the perfect marriage. <laughs> um, so I remember I was in the theater and, you know, I was... I was pretty deconstructed by the story that this film told. Side note about the Truman Show, I think one of the most incredible things, it was so ahead of its time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, I'm trying to think of a good way to say it, but, you know, Truman, you know, the child who's born into a television show and he's follow his every move is follow, is 
being followed by them as the entire world, unbeknownst to him, assumingly completely against his will. But now we live in the opposite world yeah. <laughs> where our lives are under everybody's microscope, but we put them there. Yep. 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 So we're living a very similar life right now, but it's we choose to live it. So this show is this movie was really, really, really ahead of its time um, in my mind, and it's it's kind of it's an, a brilliant piece of social commentary. Yes, yes. <laughs> brilliant. And if you haven't seen it, and you know, I know a lot of people that I talked to about this movie dismissed it because Jim Carrey was the star. Really? Yeah, yeah. Huh. Well, the, oh, the guy from was that Ace his first, Ventura? Was that his first serious take? Uh, oh wait, no. The no. Um, majestic came out before this, and also the, the cable majestic guy. might have been after. Yeah. The cable guy was very. Device. Cable guy but was very good. Dark. Yeah, yeah but I like the cable guy, but I kind of do. When's Man on the Moon? We're gonna have to do a That's whole. Later. Oh, we'll do a Jim, Jim Carrey. Carrey. We'll do a Jim Carrey. But, it, yeah. but this is one of his first tr- times of was trying. It the first? That. Yeah, it's probably second. I okay, would say. all right. Yeah. But it was brilliant, and he does a, an incredible job. Yeah. And this, you know, I've I've probably watched this movie fifty times, and. It's just unbelievable. And the rest of the sound, I mean, you got some Philip Glass stuff in there. The soundtrack alone is amazing, but uh, the fact that they, they chose to use this particular piece during this kind of a, a growing up sort of a montage, <laughs> and it, it hit me just right because I got to know this piece as a child, and you know, you're seeing a child growing up to this in the background. So, yeah, that's my pick. A little bit outside of, of maybe of, the, of what we would have expected from our mixes in this uh, in this challenge, but you know when I look at movies and music and movies that weren't written specifically for those movies, these are the ones that really these four tracks really were the ones that stood out to me. No repeats, I'm shocked. And no that repeats, weird. close, We're yeah, close. twelve yeah. songs and no repeats. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. And everyone kind of had different take. I mean, I I'm kind of impressed that we we because I know we all all three of us like we True. have a core of similar things. Yes, that we, like, we do, and we, do. we didn't. Um, Go the same path. That's pretty cool. Weird. Very weird. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Quick recap. So my number one pick, Transformers the Movie, 1986, The Touch by Stan Bush. Uh, pick number two, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, 1986, the instrumental version of the Smiths, Please, Please, Please Let Me Get What I Want. Uh, track number three, Into the Wild, King of the Road by Arthur Miller from the 65 album, The Return of Roger Miller. And number four, from The Truman Show, the second movement of Chopin's Piano Concerto Number no. 1, Romance. That's track 8 on that soundtrack. And that brings us to the end of our mixes. So, guys, um, this has been a lot of fun. Why don't we quickly go around uh, the table here and tell the people out there where they can find out more about you and your projects. Melissa, where can people find you and your films? Where can they find me and my films? That's a <laughs> difficult question to answer. Um, you can get my website, www. Like I say, www. Yeah, anymore, yeah, right? <laughs> HTTP. Yeah. <laughs> Whitelightproductions.com. Um, you can also find us on Facebook. We actually have some work that's airing on Comcast right now. Ah, cool. So a comedy, well, a variety show from local artists. Mm-hmm. I'm working on a comedy series that I'm going to launch Excellent. on that show. It's a lot of work. Excellent. I'm intimidated because I don't normally do comedy. So this is... Well, flexing those muscles. I really am. Very, very cool. Pat, where can people find you and the band? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, we have our own site on the World Wide Web. Um, uh, Effusion35.com. That's E-F-F-U-S-I-O-N-35.com. And uh, from there, you can get to all of our good stuff on Bandcamp and iTunes and Facebook and really, you know, all the standards. You'll find us. Uh, we're not hidden. There's not many 
uh, references on Google to Fusion 35. <laughs> um, pretty much me and uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. That's about it. Very cool. Well, I am. Uh, you can find the more about the show on mixtapechallenge.com. We're also on Twitter, Apple Music, and Spotify under Four Song Mixtape. No spaces. So, guys, this has been a wonderful. Thank you, Melissa, for this challenge. It's been a, a lot of fun. Thank you for entertaining my challenge. Of course, of course. That's that's what we're here about. The Mixtape Challenge is all about music discovery and challenging each other to discover new music. So we'll be back with you again in a couple of weeks. Um, Haven't picked out the next topic yet, but um, keep an eye on the website, mixtapechallenge.com, or our Twitter feed, Four Song Mixtape, and we'll find out what our next challenge is going to be pretty soon.